Looking forward to our message in John chapter 16. And we've been working through John for some time now, and we're getting into the final chapters. Chapter 16 is the final section of Jesus' talk with his disciples. And some of that uh, talk happened in the upper room. And then the portion we're looking at now is probably outside of the room, maybe on the way to the garden, is where some of these things were spoken. And um, we're going to read John 16, 1 through 11. And I've entitled the message today, um, The Big Change. The Big Change. And some of this has been discussed in prior verses. Um, there's one big difference that is laid out in the ending of our text today. So uh, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, please do so. John 16, 1 through 11 is our reading today. John 16, 1 through 11. Jesus says, I have spoken these things to you that you should not stumble. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time comes that whoever kills you will think that he is serving God. They will do these things to you because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go my way to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But sorrow has filled your heart, because I have said these things to you. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Comforter will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you will see me no more. Of judgment, because the Prince of this world is judged. Let's pray together. Lord, we look to you now, and I thank you for these words that are spoken. I pray that we will learn today, that we will have our hearts taught and instructed of you. Help us to learn of the hatred of the world. Help us to learn of the departure of you to your Father, and help us to learn of the Holy Spirit's present work on this earth. May we believe these truths. May we let them guide our thinking and our living, and we give you praise and glory for the way that you have worked in the past for the way that you are working presently and what you will do next in the future. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, please be seated. Well, I've entitled the message, The Big Change. I don't know uh, what big changes come to your mind when you think of a big change. There are some changes that are personal and there are some that are much broader than that. One of the big changes that comes to my mind is uh, when 9-11 happened. And when 9-11 happened, that was kind of like a pre-9-11 and post-9-11, and I suppose our kids will maybe grow up thinking of pre-COVID and post-COVID, right, and just some major event where things are very different in a certain way after this big change takes place. Uh, in, a, in a person's personal life, you know, um, a marriage or leaving home or the death of a parent or the death of a spouse, these are big change events where things are completely different. Jesus is teaching his disciples about a big change that is taking place. And the big change is that he's leaving them. But in a sense, we could say it's a big exchange because when he leaves them, someone else is coming. That is, the Holy Spirit is coming in, we wouldn't want to say in his place, but we would maybe say um, as the next person, as the next aspect, um, as the next one, uh, we use that word, the next one, to serve the people of God on earth. So um, in these first few verses, it's a little bit of where we left off last week. And I want to just remind us that last week, if you were with us, we talked about the hatred of the world. Do you remember that? The hatred of the world against believers. And all throughout, he warns them, he tries to prepare them about this hatred. And then the final two verses, he tells them about the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, when the Comforter comes whom I will send to you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he shall testify of me. 
and you shall also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So last week we looked at the hatred of the world and then the coming of the Holy Spirit. And today is very much the same outline. The hatred of the world in the first few verses and then the coming of the Holy Spirit and his work in the second few verses. So first we see this preparation for persecution. And he says in verse 1, I have spoken these things to you that you should not stumble. I don't know if you caught it, but in the first six verses, six times he makes reference to these things. And uh, he may be talking about the whole evening's conversation or maybe just the things he said most recently in the conversation about persecution and the Holy Spirit. So we don't know precisely, but it, it certainly does include the persecution talk. That's for sure, because he kind of goes on and builds off of that. And he says, I want you to know these things so that you would not stumble. Um, that you would not stumble. This is the idea of something that could get you off course. Something that could trip you up. Something that could cause you a problem. Um, I, I think of, uh, you know, if you have to get up in the night and you don't have a night light. All right? Now, in my room, I like there to be zero light. And I mean zero. I don't even like a little green light on an electronic device. I mean, I need zero light. But one of the problems with that is if you have uh, something lying on the floor or if you have a, a door open or something, you may get in a little trouble. There was one time I remember I was going through the night and I was going like this with my hands, you know, trying to make sure I didn't run into anything. I made a critical error. I did not go all the way till my hands were crossing each other and there was a door open. And I went like this and I went right on the nose, right like straight on. You know, um, that's not exactly stumbling, but it is injuring yourself. And he says, I don't want you to stumble. I don't want you to hurt yourself or to get off course. And he says, so I'm telling you these things ahead of time. So he's warning them that the world is going to hate them, that they will be persecuted, that things will not go easily. Now, when we talk about stumbling here, he's not talking about physical stumbling. Okay, He's talking about spiritual stumbling. You know what spiritual stumbling is? Spiritual stumbling is when you fall into sin because of things that people do to you. Um, sometimes I warn people about a sinful response to sin. Did you know it's possible to have a sinful response to sin? Moses was kept out of the promised land because of a sinful response to sin. And so when people sin against us, sometimes we are tempted to sin right back at them. And he says, I'm telling you ahead of time, these people are going to hate you, they're going to persecute you, I don't want you to stumble. He's already taught them earlier to love their enemies, to do good to those who persecute you, Matthew chapter 5. So um, even, even if we think of the disciples themselves, they later this very night would forsake Christ, Peter would come back, but then he would deny Christ, right? And so there was a, a, a sinful response to the trouble that was going on around them. Jesus wants us to avoid that. In verse 2, he says, they shall put you out of the synagogue. So um, let's make sure we have first successful plans, all right? Verse 1, plan ahead of time to do the right, even though uh, things are going wrong around you, if you will. Next, we see these strong pains. Let's look at verse 2. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time comes that whoever kills you will think that he is serving God. Wow. Two things. He talks about painful events are going to come to them. They are going to be put out of the synagogue. Do you remember talking about being put out of the synagogue in our earlier study in John? You say, I can't remember that far back. I understand. Back in John chapter 9, there was a blind man. And he had parents who did not want to testify to the Pharisees because they were worried they would be put out of the synagogue. And the blind man, he had some courage, and he said, well, you know, here's this guy who gave my eyes sight, and here you are wondering if he's from God or not. And he says, he basically says, you know, no one else could do this except God with him, and so on and so forth. And Jesus, um, Jesus had healed him, and he, was, he wouldn't lie about it, and he would tell the truth about it, and he had some courage, and it says they threw him out of the synagogue. John chapter 9. You can go back and read it later. Well, Jesus comes to him, and uh, he comes to him to comfort him. And uh, that's when he tells him, I am, I am the Messiah. And he places his faith in him. But to be cast out of the synagogue is, 
it's probably hard for us to imagine. We might think of being excommunicated from the church. That's probably the closest thing that we could think of that would maybe line up. And it, it is sort of a similar thing. However, in their time, it would go beyond just the religious fellowship or the religious communion of the synagogue. It would also extend to society. Those Jews wouldn't do business with you anymore. They would shun you. They wouldn't talk to you. And so in a Jewish culture, that was to be put into the fringes. And Jesus is saying, they're going to put you out of the synagogue. Now, in our day and time, we're not in the synagogue, so we can't get put out of the synagogue, right? But you know, there's plenty of believers around the world who have been put out of the religious fellowship, or they have been put out of the socially accepted fellowship. You know what we call this in 2024? We call it getting canceled. You will get canceled, all right? And uh, that's this idea of what he's telling them. He's warning them, this is, this is what is going to happen to you. They will be an outcast. But I want to see the next phrase. Yes, the time comes that whoever kills you will think that he is serving God. This is a whole other level. Now he says they're going to kill you, and the people who kill you will think that they are serving God. Now, is there someone in the Bible that comes to mind when we think of this? Well, absolutely. We think of the Saul of Tarsus. Later, he became known as Paul, and the Bible refers to him as Paul later. But before he was saved, he would persecute people. And when the first martyr, Stephen, was martyred, he held the robes and the cloaks of those who, who cast their robes off so they could pick up stones to kill him. And Paul himself, he arrested people and he brought them even to a point of, of uh, trial and execution and so on because of their faith. And he did so with a zeal for the law. He did so with a zeal for the truth of Judaism and the, the God Jehovah. And he thought that he was working for God. He thought he was pleasing God. And he was killing people. Now, I don't have to tell you that this kind of thing still happens today. I, I mentioned uh, just a little bit ago an, an example of 9-11. Well, on 9-11, the men that got on those planes believed they were performing jihad, which is holy war. And they believed that a killing of an infidel, as they would call it, was something that pleased Allah. And they would say that this is a good thing and that they're accomplishing a religious mission and that it is advancing the cause of Allah. Well, guess what? The Bible indicates that that is not the case, and I won't go into all the reasons why, but Jesus says they're going to kill you. They're going to kill you. This is very foreign to us in America. Very foreign. We don't live in a culture that kills Christians today. Now, there is social stigma sometimes, and there's other lesser forms of persecution that happen, but killing and even imprisonment is not not something that Christians uh, suffer for their faith, okay? We're talking about for their faith. But as we get out of America, and as we get out of maybe the present time, there's examples currently in other countries, and there's a plenty of examples in history of people that were killed for their faith. I want to just briefly tell you a story of one man. Um, his name is Thomas Cranmer, and he's an interesting uh case study in, in connecting with this verse, in, in England there was a, a back and forth between the Protestants and the Catholics, and Thomas Cranmer was a Protestant, and yet he was a man that, um, he had power, he became the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is the highest position in England in the Roman Catholic Church. So the Archbishop of Canterbury had connections with Rome, and he was a Catholic at, at the time, and the full divide hadn't yet happened between the two. And so Thomas Cranmer the Catholic is the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the King of England wants to get a divorce from his wife because she can't bear him any kids, which is a horrible uh, reason, there's horrible reason to divorce your wife, but that's what he wanted. And so Thomas Cranmer tried to make it happen with the Vatican, the Vatican said no. So Thomas Cranmer, he, he broke the whole uh, Catholic Church off from the rest of the Catholic Church, and he formed the Church of England, okay? Now, um, I'm, certainly I don't approve of everything that Thomas Cranmer ever taught, said, or did, and he's not like my hero, but, what, but this, la this ending part of my story, I have deep respect for how things ended. So, uh, for a while, these Protestants had power in England, 
and they, the king was on their side, and Protestants kind of had some authority and, and some protection and things. Well, then came along um, the, a queen, um, and I'm going to forget her name, Queen Mary something. She was a Catholic, and she acceded to the throne, and all of a sudden, things turned quickly. And so Thomas Cranmer was arrested, and he was taken into custody, and they began to torture him. And they told him he must recant. And you know he did recant. He recanted numerous times. Um, some people say five or six times. He recanted his faith. But um, he recanted once again. And, and so they said, well, if you don't recant, you're going to be taken to the fire. And so he had a day or two to, you know, think things through. But the, this is the thing that got me. The day that they were going to take him and burn him at the stake, they gathered for a church service beforehand. And the, the sermon was on all the reasons Thomas Cranmer should be burned at the stake. Now, can you imagine coming to church and having someone chained up in the corner and saying, after service, we're going to go out and burn this man? Like, it, it blows our minds, doesn't it? But these Catholics believed they were doing God a service by doing this. Now, the, the rest of the story with Thomas Cranmer is, um, is, is pretty unique because he had signed a recantation with his right hand. And so uh, when they took him out to the fire, they asked him again to recant. And he said, absolutely not. And it, he began to preach and to say, you know, faith in Christ alone and certain things that were against Catholic dogma. And so they chained him and they put him up and they, they um, started the fire. He took his right hand, which the fire was not yet on his body, and he placed it into the fire first. And he said, let this be burned first, because this is the hand that I recanted with. And he said, I will. And, and he did. He held it in the fire until it was gone. And then oh, eventually yeah, the rest of the fire came to his body. But he ended uh, some of his final words were, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, quoting Stephen and so on. And I, I do think that he was a, a saved man. I say all that to say there are people who will kill you and think they are doing God a service. And when this, if this were to happen in America, we should recognize that God is not, how, is, God is not somehow uh, abandoning us or doing us wrong or uh, forgetting us, but rather he predicted in his word that this may happen. And so he's, he's warning his children. He's saying, look, someone may want to kill you. They will think they are doing God a service. That is the level of hatred that can happen to the child of God. And so he, he gives them a warning about these strong pains that may come to his children. Second, uh, thirdly, in verse 3, we see the source of persecution. And they will do these things to you because they have not known the Father or me. This is a prophetic promise of pain and difficulty. Um, he says the reason they do this to you is they don't know the Father, they don't know me. We mentioned Paul, uh, Saul of Tarsus, and when he was persecuting people, he did so in the name of God, but the reality was he did not know the Father, and he did not know Christ, and that was why they would do such a thing. Um, generally speaking, those who kill Christians are not Christians. <laughs> All right, It's kind of a general rule. I, there's certainly exceptions, I suppose. But um, persecution, Jesus has said, is the world persecuting his people. And so that, that's an indicator there that those who uh, say that they know God or whatnot um, clearly do not when they are doing this sort of thing. You know, it reminds me of Matthew 7. Jesus says that in the final judgment, there will be people that will stand before God and say, oh, we have done, uh, cast out demons and... and um, many wonderful signs and done many wonderful works. And Jesus will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. And right here he says, they do this because they have not known the Father or me. So this is the source of their persecution. Because they don't know God the Father, they don't know God the Son, this means that they are under the power of darkness and the influence of Satan, etc. All right, verse number four. But these things I have told you that when the time comes... You may remember that I told you of them, and these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. This is very simply here a foreknowledge of the persecution. It's a, we might call it a prepared mind. And, you know, um, to prepare yourself mentally can sometimes really be a help. When the dentist says, all right now, 
This is going to be like a little, um, a little uh, bee sting, right? And he comes with his needle, pokes it in your gum. I remember thinking to myself one time, that's worse than a bee sting. Um, but anyway, uh, here's a little, a little something, and I'll, you can kind of prepare yourself for it, and then it hits. Well, he says, I'm telling you this ahead of time, so when it does happen, you'll remember that I told you about it. And he wants them to be aware of this so that God truly knows about this. This hasn't caught God off guard. Um, he doesn't want the faith of his children to be shaken in their persecution. You know, persecution will do one of two things to you. It will push you closer to Jesus, or it will push you away from Jesus. And he tells him ahead of time, he says, these hard times are coming, I'm telling you ahead of time, so when it comes, you'll know that I told you about it. And because I told you about it, that means I knew it was coming, and I'm aware of it, and I'm not taken off guard, and I haven't forgotten you, and I'm not breaking my word. This is, is anticipated and known ahead of time. And, you know, Jesus himself, um, you know, that final phrase, these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. When I first read that, I thought, now what, what does he mean by that? You know, he didn't tell them this earlier in his time because he was with them. Well, I think part of the idea is this, is that Jesus bore the brunt of the persecution when he was on earth, right? All the focus was on, hey, what's he saying then? All the focus was there. Well, you take Jesus out of the equation, who's left? Well, the apostles are number one on the list. And so he warns them. And then secondarily, all of God's children would be under that as well. And, and so he says, I didn't tell you this before. I was with you. It was unneeded at that time, but now it is needed. All right, verse number five, we have a new section here. Preparation for the departure of Jesus. Verse five, Jesus says, but now I go my way to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? So uh, there were some questions of where are you going. So I think he must be saying right now that they're not asking him that. He's not saying they've never asked him that. But presently he's saying, none of you are asking me, where am I going? And um, he says, I'm going to the one who sent me. That's where I'm going. And he's preparing them for this departure. He's told them several times. He's telling them again. This departure is coming. Uh, be aware. Be prepared. So there's some ignorance, uh, perhaps, on their part about where he's going. And he's clarifying. I'm going to the one who sent me. When he says that, he's, he's, he's making sure they understand he's not going somewhere else on the earth, right? Like he's going to abandon them and go over to, you know, the opposite side of the world or something. Um, earlier, the Jews had kind of thought, oh, is he going to go off into the Gentile world? Because he said something about where I go, you cannot come. So he's being very specific now. I'm going to the one who sent me. I'm not just dying and disappearing. I'm not just going somewhere else on the world. I'm going to the Father. Verse 6, but sorrow has filled your heart because I have said these things to you. So they were sad about it. There was sadness on, on the disciples' part. And um, these, these disciples were very sad and very concerned. And so we see their sadness, their sorrow, um, maybe even their confusion. And now in verse 7, we see this benefit. Look at this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Comforter will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. This is important. Now, the disciples couldn't understand this at first. But Jesus is actually saying, it is for your benefit. It is for your advantage. You are actually coming out ahead because I am leaving. Now that sounds counterproductive, doesn't it? I mean, if I had Jesus with me, and Jesus says, you know what, you'll be better off when I'm not here. I'd say, yeah, right. There's no way. I'm, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. I want to be as close to you as I can. I'm not, you know, that, that makes no sense whatsoever. But see, they didn't understand fully what this meant of the Comforter coming to them. They hadn't experienced the Holy Spirit indwelling them within permanently. They had never experienced that. And so Jesus makes it clear. He's leaving them, but he's leaving them for their benefit. You know, this is not a selfish escapism on Jesus' part. You know, it's getting hot in the kitchen. I think I'm going to get out of here, you know. 
No, that's not that spirit at all. Jesus would go to the cross, he would endure all the suffering, and he would get out of the way because the next step in God's plan was that the Holy Spirit would come. You know, we live in this era now, don't we? Jesus is not physically here. And there are people who will say things like this. Yeah, well, if I could see him with my own two eyes, I would believe, right? I would believe. There was plenty of people that saw him with their own two eyes, right? Many, many did not believe. Some did believe. And today, presently, the work of belief is not happening through the physical body of Jesus. The physical body of Jesus is gone. It is in heaven. That's another reason why when we take communion, I don't teach you, and the Bible doesn't teach us, that it's the body of Jesus. It's not the body of Jesus. You know where the body of Jesus is? It's in heaven. It is not here. It's gone. Okay? That's a little side note. I didn't, I didn't plan to get off on that tangent. But, but verse 7 says, it's for your benefit. It's expedient for you. And it was a planned, orderly, and purposeful choice for Jesus to leave this world. And there's another uh, verse that speaks of this earlier in John. John 7, 39 says, He spoke this of the Spirit, whom those who believe in Him would receive, future tense. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Christ had to go to the cross, and He had to be glorified and ascended to the Father before the Holy Spirit could come. And uh, it's important to understand that part of things. Now in verse number 8, we hit preparation for the arrival of the Spirit. Jesus is teaching these disciples about what the Holy Spirit will do when He comes. Now you remember last week we talked about the hatred of the world and how through the Holy Spirit we can speak truth even when we are hated for Christ's sake. We can witness of Jesus because the Holy Spirit witnesses of Jesus. Now in verse 8, we see a summary or a breakdown, or an explanation of how the Holy Spirit works in our world today. In 2024, in the month of February, the Holy Spirit is at work in our world. We don't always think of that, but it's very, very true. God the Holy Spirit is doing these things even today. Let's read about them. Verse 8, when He comes, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Let's see these. This is the conviction power of the Holy Spirit. He will convict the world. So the teaching is this, that when the Holy Spirit comes, He indwells the believers. The world hates the believers. And the believers have the power of the Holy Spirit and they can speak forth back to those who hate them. And through the working of the Holy Spirit, He will convict. Now, when you hear the word conviction, what do you think of in our society? Someone was convicted. What do we think of? Court, right? We think of the law, right? They, they were convicted because they had done something wrong, and then they were judged to be guilty, and they were punished from that. The Bible uses this word convict of what the Holy Spirit does. Now, in verse this is the first of three actions that the Holy Spirit will do on this earth. We'll have to get to the next two next week. So in verse, uh, in, in verse 8, it's he will convict. In verse 13, it's uh, he will guide. And then in verse 14, it's he will glorify. Okay, so the Holy Spirit's doing all three of these things. And the first of these is this conviction. Now the guiding and the glorifying, especially the guiding, is for the believer. But this convicting is for the unbeliever. Now, back to verse 7, it's, it calls the Holy Spirit the Comforter. Do you remember that? The Comforter. Now, in, verse, in chapter 14, we looked more in depth at this term Comforter. And the word means someone who is called to the side of someone to help. A helper who is called to the side of. And as that, that one comes to the side of, he will comfort the one that he has come to help. And in, in uh, 1 John 2, the same term in Greek is called advocate. And there the advocate is someone who's standing beside someone in defense of them, much like a defense lawyer would do in court. He will stand up with the defendant and he will argue in defense of his client, right? So someone called to the side of to defend. But here it says he will convict. Now this action is one of 
not a defense lawyer, but this is an action of a prosecutor. The prosecutor is the one who stands to argue against the one who is wrong, the one who has broken the law. And so it's, it's a legal term again, but it's kind of applied on offense instead of on defense, if you will. And here we have the Holy Spirit. Now, another way to think about this is that the Holy Spirit stands in the defense of Jesus Christ against the accusations of the world. And that's a, an interesting thought as well, that he is defending Christ to the world. So uh, there's some truth in that as well. But that word convict, um, it, it can be translated several different ways. Let me see where that went. Um, it can mean to convince. It can mean to uh, uh, rebuke. It can mean to repute, reprove or expose. All of these are this idea of convict. So the Holy Spirit is coming, and who is he convicting? Who is he convicting according to verse 8? He shall convict the world. The world. Now, in context, the world are the ones who are hating the believer, right? And so Jesus is assuring his apostles and all of his children that when the world hates them, they will not bear that hatred alone. They will have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. That's the first thing that it lists. The Holy Spirit is convicting the world of sin. And of righteousness and of judgment. Now, verse 9, 10, and 11 are going to take each of these three. And so we'll look at them more in depth um, individually in the next three verses here. But I want, I want us to be aware that the Holy Spirit is doing this work. And he does it in various ways. How does the Holy Spirit do this? How are people convicted by the Holy Spirit? Well, one way is that the Holy Spirit speaks to their spirit, which we might call the conscience, and he pushes and activates the conscience for people to see that they are wrong, that they are sinners, that they have broken the law of God. Another way that this happens is via the children of God themselves, via we might call the saints of God, Remember we talked about when we live righteously, it sends a contrasting message to those who do not. They do not like that. And so as the Holy Spirit, the spirit of holiness lives in us and we do right, that contrast can be a frustration and a condemnation even to those who do not do right. And so the saints of God can be a source of this Holy Spirit conviction. And then thirdly, the scripture is another source. That is the words the Holy Spirit has given in the word of God as they are spoken, as they are preached, those words convict those who are lost. So in this world today, the Holy Spirit is, he is arguing, he is convincing, he is judging. Uh, we might even say he's knocking at the door. We might say he's shouting, hey! Sometimes he's whispering, hey, what about that? And the Holy Spirit is convincing people of sin. And you know what? Let me just be clear. People don't like to be convinced of sin because it's uncomfortable. I mean, you know that pricking in your heart, that unsettledness, that sense of guilt, that sense of condemnation, it's not fun. And the Holy Spirit, he's pushing and he's working and he's whispering and he's arguing and he's saying, you're wrong. That's not right. That's not okay. There's something wrong. There's something wrong. And so people, they have, they have one of two choices. They can listen to that or they can run from that. And a lot of people are running. And so to run from the Holy Spirit, they don't like to hear the Bible. They don't like to go to church. They don't like to be around Christians. Sometimes they try to drown out the, the voice of their conscience. And so they uh, turn on the music and turn it real loud. They uh, open the can of beer. They, uh, you know, do drugs. They go to parties. They constantly have something going on so they don't have to listen to that voice of the conscience. You know, I, I can't remember who said it. Probably weren't even a Christian. But there, somebody said that to be able to be alone in stillness and, and to be at peace was one of the greatest gifts. And some people, when stillness and quietness comes to them, and it's just them and their thoughts and, and God, they can't handle it. They can't tolerate that. And the Holy Spirit is convicting the world. Some respond to it more than others. 
You know, the Bible says that God has a mission to prove us to be guilty. Did you know that? Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever things the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Okay, so that's kind of obvious. Whatever the law states, it's speaking down to those who are under the law. That makes sense, you know. Even in America, we have like state law and federal law. Well, state law says, speaks to those who are in the state. Federal law speaks to those who are in the country. It's speaking to those who are under the law. But then it goes on to say this, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So the Holy Spirit is using the law of God and the children of God and the power of His own Holy Spirit to help the world know that they are guilty before God. That means that as a Christian, I need to cooperate with and depend on the Holy Spirit to bring conviction of sin to others. I think sometimes there are some Christians that think it is their job alone to make sure other people know they are sinners. Well, we certainly should be willing to speak the truth of God's word and have a boldness, but we need to remember the Holy Spirit must also be at work. It is not enough to simply you know, throw an accusation or to say something. The Holy Spirit has to convict of sin. So verse 9 says, of sin because they do not believe in me. The Holy Spirit is convincing and convicting the world of sin because they don't believe on Christ. Now why, why does he say, because they do not believe in me? What, what does that have to do with this? Well, in a couple things, I would say first of all, that the reason their sin is such a problem is they have not believed on Christ, right? Pastor John is a sinner, right? But I have believed on Christ. So that means my sins have been forgiven. So yes, the Holy Spirit will guide me into holy living. He will help me along the way. But because I believed on Christ, I'm in a whole other category with God. He's convicting the world because the world has not believed on Christ. And their sin remains. Their sin is unforgiven. Their sin is there. And it separates them from God. And thus they are guilty. You know, Jesus is the only one that hasn't sinned. Right? And so Jesus is the obvious contrast to the rest of us. Sinners, the perfect sinless one. And so the Holy Spirit comes along and he says, look at you. And then he says, look at him. You're the simple one. He's the sinless one. And so there's an, a strong contrast. And yet the world has not believed on him. Well, if we would see our sin, it would help us to see the perfect, sinless Lamb of God. And so the, the Holy Spirit is convicting of sin. Now, I also want to point out that the greatest sin a person can commit is to not believe on Christ. Did you know that? That is the greatest sin. And in fact, it's the only sin that God will not forgive. Did you know that God is willing to forgive any sin except the sin of refusal to believe on Christ? Now, once we believe on Him, then I guess past disbelief could be, could be removed. But actively, there must be a placing our faith in Christ. This also tells us something else, that reform is not the final solution. If the Holy Spirit convicts me of my sin, that means I am aware that I have wronged, I have disobeyed God. And it says of sin because they do not believe in me. You see, if, if the Holy Spirit is just trying to get me to live better and nothing else, then that phrase because they do not believe in me, would not follow that, right? But the whole point of our conviction of sin is that we would believe on Him. And the answer to our sin problem is belief. It is not reform. It is not change. It is not life improvement. It is belief in Jesus Christ. That is the answer to our sin problem. And this is made clear in verse 9. Because they do not believe in me. Now let's look at verse 10. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you will see me no more. You see, the Holy Spirit is shining a light on sin, but He is also shining a light on righteousness. He will convict the world of righteousness. And you know, these two things go together. If, if the world sees that they're sinners, they will know that they're not righteous. 
And the, the Holy Spirit is working to uphold true righteousness. In fact, the gospel upholds the righteousness of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 17 says, For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteousness of God is revealed. So the Holy Spirit is shining a light on sin, saying that is wicked, that is wrong. And the Holy Spirit is shining a light on the righteousness of God, saying this is righteousness, this is truth, this is what perfection looks like. And the world is having these lights shone upon them. And the world tries to say, oh, I'm good, I'm good enough, I don't need Christ, I'm good. The Holy Spirit says, you don't know what good means. You don't know true righteousness, or you wouldn't say such a thing. And you know what the world also tries to say? They try to make Jesus into a sinner. Oh, he, he was just a nice guy, but he was like the rest of us. You know? And what the world does is they want to lower Jesus, and they want to lift up humans. Right? That's the opposite of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is putting down humans to where we really are. This is who you are. And is lifting up Jesus for who He really is. This is the true righteous one. And so the Holy Spirit is convicting and convincing the world of this truth. Um, I, I saw this in action. Somebody showed, uh, shared a, a photo online of a kid's book about Jesus. And, you know, it is important to watch what your kids are reading especially these days. But here's this kid's book about Jesus, and they had circled the text, and it says, Jesus went to be baptized, saying, I need to wash my sins away. Oh, hold on a minute. Is that what Jesus said when he went to be baptized? No. In fact, when Jesus showed up to be baptized, John the Baptist said, I have, I have need to be baptized of you, and you're coming to me? In other words, John's saying, you're holier than I am, and, and you're coming to me to be baptized? And Jesus said, let it be done to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus is saying, let's do this because I am fulfilling all righteous things and this is one more thing I must do for God the Father. It was not to wash his sins away and next week we're going to have a baptismal here and it is not to wash sins away here either. Uh, we'll talk about that more later. But my point is the world wants to lower Jesus to be a sinner and tries to lift us up to be good people. The Holy Spirit is doing the opposite work. And He, by His Spirit, is convincing people of their sin and convincing people of the righteousness of Christ. And let's look at the third thing the Holy Spirit is doing, verse 11. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. You see, there is one more thing the Holy Spirit is convincing people of, and that is judgment. Judgment. There is a day, there is a time, there is a moment where sin will be dealt with. Where there will be a judgment before God. And this judgment can refer to the decision of the judge, and it can also refer to the punishment from the judge. Um, we talked about court cases and some of these court terms that are in this text. Well, when the, when the judge renders a verdict, it is also sometimes called a judgment. A judgment against the plaintiff in the amount of. That means that God makes a decision. There comes before him a question. Is this person a sinner or not? God will make the judgment. He's the judge. He will decide. He will render his verdict. And when he does, there will also be a punishment or a, uh, a reckoning or a uh, sentence given forth. And the Holy Spirit is convincing people of a judgment to come. Christian, the world does not want to think about a judgment to come. They want to believe in a God that is fine with everything they do, right? They want to believe in a buddy God who has no qualms about anything that they do. But the Holy Spirit comes along and he says, you're a sinner. He is righteous. There is a judgment. And see, the Holy Spirit is sending a very, very different message. The world is trying to console itself and to quiet itself into this calm cocoon of everything will be okay and the Holy Spirit comes along and says you're not saved you're not you're not righteous you're a sinner you're wrong before God you've broken the law of God he is the righteous one he's the only righteous one and then the Holy Spirit says there's coming a day of judgment and notice what he says next because the prince of this world is judged 
You know, the prince of this world was judged when Christ died on the cross. Jesus said this in John 12. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world shall be cast out. See, the, the power and the uh, authority of Christ, of, of Satan, excuse me, was broken by Christ on the cross. Now we know that, that this struggle is still ongoing, but the certainty of victory was won on the cross. And the prince of this world was judged, specifically in the area of death, right? Satan, the god of death, had Jesus enter into death, his realm, and then he came out of it, right? He, three days later, he was resurrected, showing that the power of Satan was broken. So Satan was judged on the cross. He was shown to be wrong. He was shown to be the loser. He was shown to be the one who did not have authority. And now the Holy Spirit says there is coming another judgment where you will stand before God, where he will render a verdict about you. And because there's already been a judgment of Satan, and because he's already been shown to be the loser, you better know that you're ready for the day where you stand before God and where a judgment is rendered over you, and you better come to a place of agreement with God. The Holy Spirit, remember it says he will testify of me? The Holy Spirit is telling the truth. Later, next, next week, he's going to be called the Spirit of Truth. I'm thankful the Holy Spirit never, ever lies to me. And what he does is he lifts up Jesus as the righteous one. He puts me down as the sinful one I am. And I'm thankful he doesn't just leave it there. That's not the end of the story. But he does this work in preparation for us to be saved. And so we come to see that Christ is the only righteous one. We are the sinful ones. There is a judgment to come. But you know what he's also done? He's told us, he's put us in our place, but he's put Christ in his. And when we see that Christ is the righteous one, and that he judged Satan, and he died on the cross, and he defeated Satan, then we learn that he can defeat our sin too. And that his death was a payment for our sin as well. And that through his stripes we are healed, and by his death we are forgiven. And so now, the Holy Spirit leads us to see that Christ is the answer, we are the problem. He is the solution to our need. And by faith and confidence in Christ, by telling the Lord that I'm a sinner, agreeing with Him about this, and accepting His work for me, what happens is I become a child of God. The one song talks about born of the Spirit with life from above, into God's family divine, justified fully through Calvary's love. Oh, what a standing is mine! And the transaction so quickly was made, when at the cross I believed, took of His offer, his grace he did proffer, that is, he offered and paid. He saved me, oh, praise his dear name. And the Holy Spirit is working in the heart of every lost person. And sometimes there is a stronger working than others. Sometimes the voice rings a little louder than other times. But you know, in the world, people have to decide, am I going to listen or am I going to run? Am I going to face up to the music of what God's telling me or am I going to go, nah, 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 nah. What are we going to do? What are we going to do with this work of the Holy Spirit? He is convicting the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. We as his people cooperate with him. The Bible says that because Jesus left, the Holy Spirit came. And now if you look at the world, all around the world, on every continent and in every country of the world, there are people that know Christ. There are people who have agreed with the Holy Spirit. I am a sinner. He alone is righteous. There is a judgment coming. How did they come to these conclusions? Because the Holy Spirit was at work. Because the Word of God was read and believed and trusted to be true. The Holy Spirit's working, and He's not just working in Afghanistan and Russia and faraway places. He's working, too, in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's working, too, in every nation Baptist church. And if the Holy Spirit's been knocking at your door and you've been hearing these messages, you're guilty, you're wrong, something's not okay, down in your heart, don't ignore the Spirit. 
Don't pretend you don't hear Him. Don't pretend it's not true. Rather, yield to it. Look to it and agree with God. Agree with the Holy Spirit. And say, yes, I am a sinner. Yes, you alone are righteous. I cannot be righteous alone by myself. I must have the work of Christ for my sin. Because when that day of judgment comes, the Bible says the children of God have a completely different judgment. Completely different. We stand before Christ. We stand before Him to be rewarded. Some more than others. But it's a place of reward. It's a place of blessing. The Bible says the lost man at the great white throne, judgment of Almighty God, that I take to mean God the Father, there they will stand without Christ at their side. They will stand to be condemned and sent to hell forever. Our sin is our problem, but His righteousness is our answer. By faith, we can be forgiven. This is the message of the Spirit. Let's bow together. We're going to sing in just a moment, but I do want to give an opportunity. If you're here and you say, Pastor John, I've been under conviction. I feel and I sense the guilt of my sin, and I know that I'm not saved. I know I'm not forgiven. Concerned about that. I'm worried about that, and I want to make sure I understand how to be saved, and I need to know this today. If you're here and you say, Pastor John, I, I agree that God has been working in my heart and I want to respond to him. I want to be forgiven of my sin today. Is there anyone left or right that would say, I need to talk to someone today. Make sure I know that I'm forgiven. Looking left, looking right. I don't understand. Maybe you do understand and that's the problem. You're concerned about your condition. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for your word today. The scripture is, is very clear that the Holy Spirit is presently at work in our world, convincing people of sin, convincing people of your righteousness, and convincing people there is a judgment to come. I pray, dear Lord, that everyone here in this room, everyone who is watching online or later by audio, that each person would know that they have been forgiven of sin and that they are the Lord's, that they're not a part of the world any longer. I pray that your Holy Spirit will continue and increase his work right here in this corner of Charlotte for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.